Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure. I'm a little intimidated to be with this audience for reasons that will become obvious in a few minutes. I also am amazed I'm here. I've tried twice before, and I thought it was, thought it was incredibly bad manners on your part to let these storms come. Always, also a little surprised that a snowstorm that shut down the city would actually cause you problems because, you know, it's snow. We like snow where I live, but anyway, thank you. So that's me. So, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have to tell anybody in this room, but what I live with and what you live with is uh, mostly type 2 diabetes, and I'm a very active clinician along with uh, trying to do some science. And the recent statistics, they're unbelievably scary, and I think we have to keep communicating that to the people who uh, also think about this world. So the recent statistics we all quote is the CDC has told us that we are on the cusp in the United States of about 50% of Americans having some form of glucose intolerance, a shocking statement over my career. The recent statistics show $245 billion were spent on this disease last year, which of itself, you know, the politicians live in numbers, and so it's a number. But the, probably the most important part of that is that's a 40% increase in five years, and if it continues in that rate, what are we going to do? I actually like the publication because one of the supplemental tables gives it all broken down by state. Congratulations, you're state number two. You spent $16 billion on diabetes last year. Uh, Vermont was state number 49. We spent, I think, 230, but it doesn't really matter. It's still an enormous cost to wherever we live. And then we have a number of report cards, a recent high-profile one in the New England Journal that just basically tells the clinicians, uh, you know, we're not doing a fabulous job uh, in terms of we have goals, but we don't really do great with them. So I have lived in the concept of trying to think about this disease for about 30 years and, and sort of what's the pathogenesis, as many people in this room have. Uh, I've used animal models. I, I do not do any human studies, uh, and I live in the world of islets. And it was interesting because when I started, it probably wasn't the best place to be. In this country, certainly everyone believed it was a disease of insulin resistance. And it is, but uh, I think we kind of argued over where does the beta cell fit into this. And certainly in today's world, it's not a bad place to be. And I think there are people in this room who can attest to that. I could show you umpteen different kinds of clinical data to support the importance of beta cell function in this disease. And I'll only show you one I happen to like very much. So what we're going to look at is a famous study that was done in Pima Indians, uh, a Native American tribe in this country that has an extraordinary incidence of type 2 diabetes and obesity and just metabolic problems in general. What's notable about this study is they took about 50 individuals in this high-risk ethnic group who were all normally glucose tolerant and followed them for five years and sort of looked at their biology to see what happened. Two-thirds of them remained normally glucose tolerant and a third didn't, and so this study compares the people who got diabetes to the people who didn't and tries to tease out, well, what do you get? The lines that you see there is the famous relationship between insulin action on the x-axis and insulin secretion, sort of a weird parameter, typically a, a rapid insulin response, on the y-axis, and that's called the disposition index, or there's a number of other relationships and that just essentially tells you normal bi biology, not abnormal biology, normal biology is we move up and down this curve, you know, when pregnancy and puberty and a lot of other physiological states are clearly insulin resistant states, and we move up and down this curve if we have healthy beta cells. And so now we're going to look at actually what they saw in the uh, subjects in this study. So the first thing is these are the two-thirds of people who remain normally glucose tolerant. And even though that curve was not constructed in terribly metabolically deranged individuals, 
it still was perfect. It's perfect. And if you want to fall in love with beta cells, you look at that curve because it, they, they are compensating perfectly in people who are quite obese and, and quite insulin resistant as shown on the x-axis. Great. But what happened to the people who uh, went from normal glucose tolerance to diabetes? You know, they fell off the curve. And they fell off the curve towards worsening beta cell function more than any change in insulin sensitivity. This could be reproduced hundreds of studies in cross-sectional and prospective and however you want to look at it in different ethnic populations around the world. This is sort of the defining feature of the disease. If you can compensate because your beta cells are healthy, well, life is good. If you can't compensate and you're exposed to a metabolic stress, you've got problems. And then there's something built into this where the beta cells continue to fail. There's this interesting biology where things build upon themselves and the disease worsens in part because beta cell function or mass is worsening. So we have an army of investigators, some in, uh, very notable in this institution, who study different aspects of that beta cell dysfunction. And I've made a list here you might want to add to the list. It's a little confusing and nerve-wracking because we have a multitude of potential causes of beta cell dysfunction or failure or loss of mass in this disease, and all of them have considerable support, certainly considerable support in animal models, which is the major place we've looked over the years because it's not easy to try and get islet tissue from human subjects and learn much from it. And any one of these I could discuss and provide you data and support it and uh, you know leave you with Boy, that's confusing because all that stuff is there and how's it, how does it actually fit together? I've clearly added the most recent discussion, which is a huge discussion around the world <coughs> about where does that fit in and that's a complicated topic, I must say, but that's a new one that's come in in terms of this now beta cell dedifferentiation. I want to focus on one only because you'll see a bit later in my talk it's actually an interest of mine as we speak and that's the concept of ER stress. So yes, we have data in lots of animal models that ER stress, the concept that the unfolded protein response essentially is initiated as we're increasing insulin production and having other problems, maybe they're genetic contributors to that, it becomes overcome and all of a sudden a number of key effectors are initiated which can do good things but potentially bad things to beta cells with a key one being a protein called CHOP. And so uh, we have lots of data in animal models, but we also have some data in humans. And this is a famous study from Peter Butler, which is doing pancreatic sections of uh, individuals from autopsy. And what you see is now CHOP in red, that effector, that ER stress effector, is clearly uh, what looks like hyperexpressed in the beta cells of individuals, as you see, obese and not diabetic, which is kind of interesting to me, but also clearly in people with type 2 diabetes. Again, supporting this issue, at least from looking at effectors, there appears to be an initiated response, which probably is an ER response. There's, there's another kind of data, not perfect data, but supportive data to that. And this is now taking uh, from Italy, where they have Italy, Italy. <laughs> where, they, where they had the ability to, uh, to get uh, isolated islets from individuals from uh, autopsy from type 2 diabetes in certain studies. And so they've done that in this study, individuals with patients with normal glucose tolerance, ND, and type 2 diabetes. They've put them in culture for 24 hours uh, and cultured at different glucose concentrations and then just sort of looked at what they get. And this study is focused on ER stress, and you're looking at a normal beta cell, a normal-looking endoplasmic reticulum. It's sort of finely 
fibrillar looking. It's not really dilated. It looks quite normal in architecture. But if you take diabetics, uh, um, islets from people who had type 2 diabetes that started out looking okay, but then were cultured at a high glucose concentration for 24 hours, they look quite different. The ER is much more dilated, much more apparent doesn't look as healthy. That's some of the morphological uh, sort of hallmarks of ER stress. They've quantified that in terms of dilatation uh, in the red is the islets with type 2 diabetes and blue are the normal islets. And then they're sort of looking at elaboration of some of the key factors we associate with the biology of ER stress. And you can see even though the absolute expression amount is not terribly different between the normal islets and the type 2 diabetes, there is a big difference in terms of expression when islets are cultured at a, a 100 milligram per deciliter glucose as opposed to um, 200. So again, very much supporting the authors believe that islets from patients with this disease are at higher risk for ER stress and that's an important mechanism in this disease. Now, I buy into all of that. I read all of this. I like this. The problem is there is a conceptual issue that bothers me and that doesn't bother so much those investigators, and that's shown here. So this incredibly garish slide, which I borrowed from uh, Ralph DeFranza, that's why it's so garish, uh, is really an important, important observation. So what Ralph has done, he's a very anal guy if you ever meet him, and so he is very, very carefully, the best you can, I think, try to look at quantifications of insulin secretion uh, in free-living humans, uh, uh, trying to essentially, as using as a denominator uh, a, a measure of insulin sensitivity, so he's trying to sort of bring in a reasonably accurate, understandable measure of insulin secretion in a huge number of individuals at multiple levels of glucose tolerance. So these are three levels of normal glucose tolerance and then we're gonna get into three levels of prediabetes and now multiple levels of type two diabetes. So different populations, cross-sectional observations. And yes, it shows you that you know with diabetes, beta cell capacity, beta cell function is horrible. I, I know, and that's my problem with this because all the money is much earlier. And if you come and intervene here when you have a plausible biological mechanism of disease, I don't think you're going to accomplish much. And that is very much the theme of so many of the intervention studies we deal with now. If you look at studies where incretin drugs are given, if you look at studies where people are dealing with inflammatory damage, if you look at any of these sort of novel intervention trials, if there's any improvement in beta cell function, which there often is not, but if there is, it's extremely modest and it's not long-lived. And, and, and so, I, I, you know, great. I, if I was a pharmaceutical company, I would be very nervous about thinking about jumping in when someone has type 2 diabetes with some new agent to prevent damage because there isn't that much to prevent. If it's to rebuild beta cells, restore beta cell mass, enhance beta cell proliferation, do something to try and rebuild the population, I'm on board. But otherwise, uh, it's just not where I want to spend my career. And so uh, the field kind of recognizes that, and it's interested in one really important aspect on this slide that was probably the most notable part of this study when it was first published, which is this, which is people were shocked because the people who went on to get diabetes at the beginning of the study when they were still normally glucose tolerant were weren't on the curve. And I don't think people had appreciated it. In the Defranzo, we saw there's a big falling of beta cell function during prediabetes, and even in the early stages of normal glucose tolerance, 
but people didn't really know that. And so, and so what you see here is they said, well, what is that? And in fact, that's been given an important term in my business, which is called susceptible beta cells. And there's a lot of biology which has been focused on asking a simple question. What is a susceptible beta cell? What's the biology? Uh, are there markers? Can we sort of pick that up early in the course? And, you know, people would say, it's genetics. Oh, my God, it's genetics. Of course it's genetics. So please tell us the genes. And I'm of the generation where we wanted genes to know for 20 years. And then finally we got some candidate genes. And then we got the GWAS studies, which started in 2007, and watched all the geneticists just pop out gene after gene after gene, or at least loci after loci after loci. Now, having said all of that, I this, apologize this slide is old. It's partly old because it was given to me by uh, David Altshuler when he was giving the Lilly uh, lecture in 2011, but I hope there's no geneticists here. You know, not a huge amount has happened in the genetics world in type 2 diabetes since 2011. We're still waiting for that enormously important gene that pops out that really, really sets off a lot of light bulbs and provides therapeutic targets, and it isn't clear to me we're there yet. So the take-home message is we have a boatload of loci. Many of them seem to be focused on different aspects of the beta cell. Uh, I think we think about them. I think they're expanding our understanding of beta cell biology a little bit, but they're all fairly modest. They're all a little bit difficult to understand how they fit into uh, the true biology of this disease. And I wouldn't say, as I said, there's been any earth-shattering event related to this yet. So one of the things that I thought was fascinating in the Ulschiller uh, lecture that he gave was not simply talking about what loci have been mapped out and then sort of looking at knockout mice and seeing how, how the particular issue like transcription factor 7L and these things, what they might actually do to beta cells, but he was talking a lot about international consortiums that are there that are trying to link sort of a low side to changes in beta cell function and insulin sensitivity. And I'm sure many people in this room know much more about this than me. And, and it's sort of an issue that probably hasn't hit enough of the press that I quite understand it. The take-home message to me is there are various effects of these different loci on insulin sensitivity and beta cell function. Uh, we'll probably have much more of an understandable map in years to come and how this really fits together. Right now, it's more of a scatter plot to me than anything that really changes my understanding of this disease. Now, I would point out, I get it's got to be a little careful because it's not just genetics that can uh, promote um, this concept of susceptible beta cells, and there's a fairly long list of other things, and I'm naive enough to believe that probably the most important one around the world is this issue of childhood malnutrition and poor prenatal care. Uh, and there are umpteen animal models that have actually looked at doing things to pregnant rodents, uh, from nutritional changes to banding of uterine arteries to doing all sorts of things, and then creating pups that are either small for gestational age or after the pups are born to give them nutritional changes, changing, give them false kinds of milk and, and follow them sometime later. What is actually amazing in those studies is the concept of imprinting. There's really, I think, studies from Buffalo a few years ago that I loved where they changed the fat content of a fake milk which were giving to rodent um, rat pups. And that was done until the time of weaning and then the animals were put back on normal chow and left alone. They had a higher predisposition for diabetes and for obesity later in life, which has actually been demonstrated in multiple studies. But also their pups did. They get pregnant, they, their next generation has the same predisposition. What is that all about? 
And one guesses, given the enormous <coughs> amount of uh, uh, just malnutrition and starvation and disruption and social problems that are occurring around the world, one guesses that's probably a huge contributor to the worldwide problem of diabetes, and at least that's something we might be able to try and do something about in the future. Certainly genetics is a little bit more complicated. And then we have lots of other issues we've talked about. If you went to Barbara Corky's uh, Banting lecture a year or two ago, Barbara, out of the blue, shocked me, started to talk about food additives and problems with the beta cell, something I'd never really thought much about. I think the data was a little loosey-goosey, and I don't think we really know much about that, but it certainly is a fascinating concept that things we're putting in our food are somehow leading to a higher predisposition of beta cell problems and or obesity. Lots of interest may be in environmental toxins. I don't think we've learned much about that, except if you take care of any veterans here, you'll have lots of veterans who come in and tell you that Agent Orange is, in fact, a VA-approved uh, disability agent, that there is linkage, a little loose, but there is linkage that Agent Orange might actually be a diabetes-promoting agent with sort of uh, issues on the beta cell. Um, you know, issues for the people who are interested in GI microflora, I mean, there's just fascinating data about how GI microflora, in fact, impacts nutrition and uh, metabolism, and we certainly fool around with GI microflora on a fairly frequent basis with all the antibiotics and nutritional changes and things we make in modern society. So it's a complicated subject where I don't think we have too many answers yet. And, and so, so far what I would tell you is what you already knew, which is we are ex have an explosion around the world of insulin resistance uh, and obesity and westernization related to sort of the classic risk factors we think a lot about, obesity and high-fat diets and activity and everybody getting older, but some issues we don't think enough about unless you're a clinician who works in a busy practice, certainly in a place like Harlem, where things like emotional stress are huge impacts on insulin sensitivity. One of the big topics in the diabetes world now is sleep apnea and sleep depression, and all our people who are uh, long-distance truck drivers and who are on rotating shifts are coming and tell you, I can't sleep at night, I stay up and drink coffee all night and watch TV. Not so good from a health issue. Uh, all of these things are contributing to sort of the modern society impact of metabolic stress, which is just enormous. So the message is if you were born with healthy beta cells, give your parents a kiss because in theory you can compensate, you can try and guard against these things. And if you're not clinically oriented, you don't quite understand that until you go to a gastric bypass floor, for instance, and recognize that about 60% of these unbelievably obese individuals who are super metabolically challenged have pretty normal glucose tolerance. And, you know, it's the 40% who have diabetes who we go consult on. But the other 60% we don't because their beta cells compensate. And if you see someone super obese with type 2 diabetes, many of them do well with metformin because they have such a beta cell reserve. It's not just enough for them, but you give it a little bit of a kick with some of our drugs and they do pretty well because they have enormous underlying beta cell function. And so that gets us to this issue of the two-hit hypothesis people like to talk about, which is important because I'm of the generation, when I went to the ADA meetings early in my career, there were rooms for the insulin resistance people and room for the beta cell people on the opposite side of the convention center. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't like each other. This was really not a very healthy sort of uh, research environment, and now everybody loves each other because they all study each other's tissues and signaling pathways. And, and the biology is correct. You probably don't get diabetes unless you have problems in lots of areas, not simply in the beta cell. 
So the message so far for me is I'm fine with that, but there are still some major lacking pieces of information for us to, I think, really start to know with what to do with this disease, and in, in particular the beta cell, and what's the biology? Where are we in terms of this earliest defect in beta cells? What's, what's the problem? So I'm going to switch gears now, and I'm going to talk about what I do in the lab and try and give you sort of uh, my thought on that, at least on my thought on the part of that. And I'm going to talk about what we're interested in, which is a signaling pathway of an integration from FOXO1 and PPAR gamma and beta cells. A little nerve-wracking because I'm in probably the world's most famous place for FOXO1 and insulin sensitivity and signaling pathways, and you're going to figure out we don't do the same kind of science you do. On the other hand, I'm pretty comfortable with the science we do, and I'll um, sort of pitch it in a way that makes sense to me. Be, be nice to me, okay? So here's, the, so, so, so here's the pathway we think about, and it's actually a pathway I happen to like quite a bit. And I said it's an integration between FOXO1 and PPAR gamma. So essentially we've mapped out a reasonable number of stages in beta cells to suggest that this biology actually exists. So what it says is that you have this pathway where you have FOXO1, which everyone in this room knows is a very, very famous metabolic integrator in the beta cell that's essentially uh, responding to all sorts of different kinds of signals, some of them healthy and some of them unhealthy, and then impacts beta FOXO function, cellular location, expression, on and on and on. To be fair, I, I absolutely believe that. What isn't so clear to me, at least, is what's the linkage between FOXO1 and all these downstream things it's supposed to do. And I, I don't think it's been well worked out as to what actually are some of these genetic effectors and, and signaling pathways FOXO1 might be related to. I'm certainly aware of the fact that you would tell me, well, if you get rid of FOXO1, incredibly bad things happen to beta cells in terms of just beta cell differentiation and genetic profiles, and, and they don't actually, they don't look like beta cells, they don't express like beta cells, they may be alpha cells. I'm okay with that. My only issue with that is that's with extreme problems with FOXO1. You've got to take FOXO1 and kill it. And I don't think we kill many things in the average beta cell under normal biology or pathophysiology. So sometimes these models of total knockout are fascinating. I'm not exactly sure what we end up with. And so what I'm trying to get across is I believe that FOXO1 is an integrator as a signaler, but in less extreme times it actually may affect the pathways we're going to talk about. Now, where do I come up with this idea that FOXO1 might actually affect this downstream gene PPAR gamma? Because who thinks about PPAR gamma and beta cells? Well, it turns out we sort of tripped over this through complicated ways. As Mimo knows, I study all sorts of rodent models of beta cell compensation and rodent models of beta cell failure. And one of my most, for me, informative animal models of compensation is partial pancreatectomy. So you cut out some of the beta cell mass, and then the animals compensate, don't get diabetes, and we sort of study how that is. And one of the things that became clear to us is there's a period of beta cell regrowth, proliferation, partial, it stops, and then it changes to beta, better beta cell function. So there's this sort of two-phase approach, and in the middle was a, an increased expression of PDX1, this key transcription factor in beta cells that I thought was initiating the second part of the, of the compensation. So we focused a project on looking at a sort of a gene screen. Well, what's happening at that time? So if, people, if PDX1 is going up, what else actually is changing? 
Now, these animals are normoglycemic because they compensate, and it turns out the genes we looked at not much changed, which was sort of interesting, because glucose drives a lot of the things in beta cells. But one gene that did change was the expression of PPAR gamma went up a couplefold. I thought, PPAR gamma? So then we started to study the biology. Does actually PPAR gamma and PDX1 have any interaction? So the first thing we did was what we always do, which was go to gene bank and simply ask, well, we know what a, a, a PPAR gamma response element looks like. I mean, we have a consensus statement or consensus sequence. So then let's actually see if there's some similar looking nucleotide sequence in uh, PDX1. And the answer is, lo and behold, we found several, but we found this one, which looks pretty good. If you go to uh, Matt Inspector, you can see that you have pretty good homology in both uh, rats and humans as well. And then we did all of the standard in vitro tests everybody loves to do and we've become exceedingly good at. Things like binding studies, so this is simply taking uh, nuclear fractions from um, a variety of cells. So here we've got uh, mouse-derived cells and rat-derived cells, and you take this nucleotide sequence and label it, and you put it together with a, um, a, a nuclear fraction, and you get a band, and then when you take an antibody against FOXO1, that band actually goes less, showing there's competition. We have here, simply looking at uh, competition assays, we did uh, chromatin immunoprecipitation, we have transfection studies, we have all of the things you would expect that support the concept, at least in cellular approaches, in vitro approaches, that FOXO1 does seem to regulate uh, PPAR gamma expression in, in a negative way, okay? So then we go to animal models and we have to ask friends of ours to give us animal models and so... They uh, did. We did. Yes, you did. You're, you're a good guy. So, uh, so Mimo gave us two kinds of animal models fooling around with FOXO1. One is a FOXO1 heterozygous model and one is this interesting uh, model which has a, uh, a, a, new, a shift so that you end up having FOXO1 that can't get out of the nucleus. So it stays in the nucleus and thus theoretically is turned on to inhibit its downstream genes. And when you do that, you know, the things happen that we want to happen. So in this one, when there's a reduction in FOXO1, the prediction is you should have an increase in PPAR gamma and its signaling peptide expression. And so that's exactly what you see. It's up in islets and this is at the message level and the protein level. And in this one, uh, when you have this constitutively nuclear FOXO1. The concept is you're turning off, you're inhibiting PPAR gamma and its expression. I show you up top just some, some, some uh, characterization of the model because MIMO sent this mm -hmm. model to us on a mixed background and we crossed it onto a pure black six background and so we just wanted to make sure that the phenotype that they had published hadn't changed and it hadn't. You know, they have modest glucose intolerance. We show a reduction in beta cell mass. The prediction would be you should have a reduction in uh, FOXO1. No, where am I? You should have a reduction in PPAR gamma and its downstream gene, and that's exactly what you see. So from these models, it sort of fits our belief that FOXO1 does regulate actually PPAR gamma in uh, intact rodent cells. So that's okay, and the world loves FOXO1, so, you know, good, that sounds nice. But then we said, well, we think actually the target gene is PPAR gamma. And people go like, what? Who? What? No one's interested in PPAR gamma and beta cells, which I must say uh, gives me considerable chest pain. 
Uh, and also, it's particularly important because a very, very, very famous uh, research group in Boston has published on beta cell specific PPAR gamma knockout mice twice and shown they have no phenotype, at least no important phenotype, and that uh, hurts me considerably. And all I'm going to tell you is we get very different results, and uh, unfortunately they carry more power than I do, so that makes it nervous for me, but I'm going to show you my results, and I believe my results. So PPAR gamma, you all know what PPAR gamma is. PPAR gamma is this very important transcription factor present in a multitude of tissues, and if one gets interested in PPAR gamma, it is pretty cool. It is present in so many different cells. It's thought to do so many different things. It has this fascinating sort of triad of being anti-proliferative and pro-differentiation. Uh, the cancer world has liked it. The GI world has liked it. The uh, pulmonary world has liked it. Unfortunately, the drugs that we are interested in that are PPAR gamma activators are horrible clinical drugs. And so that, that gets in the way of maybe PPAR gamma signaling and pharmacology potentially have been maybe as useful as it could have been, superimposed with the bad part is it also promotes obesity because it's obviously an adipocyte differentiation factor. And so our people who go on TZDs, they're not happy because they're fat. We're happy because their blood sugars are getting better, but that's, that's a problem. So what I'm going to tell you is that, so we've studied PPAR gamma in beta cells because of our initial studies that said that PPAR gamma is going up at the same time PDX1 is going up and have extensive in vitro data supporting that PPAR gamma directly regulates the expression of these different genes. And the importance of this, as I'll show you when I get to the end, is these are really important genes. These are not junk genes. These are hugely important defining features of how beta cells compensate to uh, different metabolic stresses and how they failed. So uh, I'll just show you, I'm going to show you, but PDX1, the GIP receptor, and also probably a fuel metabolism enzyme in mitochondria you don't know much about called pyruvate carboxylase, but it's really important in beta cells. As I'll show you, what I'm not going to show you is recent data from our lab from one of our um, investigators is he's fascinated by epigenetics and he has very strong data supporting that PPAR gamma regulates a methyltransferase 7 set 9 in beta cells, which again has got us kind of interesting. And, and the message is going to be not only does this biology seem to exist in vitro, but I'm going to show you it gets upregulated in animals that are uh, normally compensating and it gets downregulated with failure, and that gets me excited. And if you're interested in humans, all of these genes are proven to be markedly downregulated in islets from patients with type 2 diabetes. And so again, you can convince yourself this may not simply be rodent uh, biology. So I'm back to what I showed you. So what I'm going to say to you is that so once FOXO1 is doing its thing on PPAR gamma, downstream from PPAR gamma are really important genes. And they affect beta cell survival and function with PDX1. Uh, I'm going to tell you that pyruvate carboxylase is an enormously important regulator of beta cell fuel metabolism. And then I'm going to tell you, if you like incretins, and most clinicians are pretty happy with incretins these days, that the GIP receptor is not a bad thing to fool around with as well. So how did we get into this? Well, I told you we started to look at these models. We see that PPAR gamma goes up at the same time PDX1 is going up. And then we played the game of going to the PDX1 promoter and asking, well, is there any biology where PPAR gamma might do something by looking for a response element? That's something we like to do. Now, it turns out the way that PPAR gamma works is it works as a dimer with RXR. And there's a well-defined uh, sort of nucleotide footprint or consensus uh, 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 sequence where these two hexamers, where PPAR gamma 
binds to a hexamer that's typically called DR1, and that RXR binds to a hexamer that's DR2. And so we simply went to gene bank and we, we plugged in DR1 and asked, well, you know, is DR1 looking nucleotide sequence found anywhere in PDX1? And the answer is, yeah, it turns out actually great. And we said, wow, oh, I like that. But then we looked at the sequence, and it turns out this one also looks, uh, you know, uh, great for DR2. But the surprising part was that at least in the islet, there was no there there was no sort of consensus. This was sort of unique. And so we plugged this back in sometime later and said, well, is there any other genes in the beta cell that that kind of has this hexamer? I'm giving these to you totally backwards, and it's important, I apologize. We started by doing DR2. This is what's confusing. We started DR2 and found it, and then this we found was unique. There was no other PPAR response element reported that had the same DR1. And we thought, wow, isn't that interesting? So we go back to GeneBank, and we say, well, does any other gene actually have this nucleotide sequence? And the answer was the GIP receptor, and that's how we started to get interested later in the GIP receptor. Okay. So we've done all of the in vitro things that you think about that I've already showed you. We've done mutational studies, we've done binding studies, we've done super shifts, we've done competitions, we've done chromatin <coughs> immunoprecipitation, transfection studies, you name it. All of the genes that I sort of listed there as being PPAR gamma target genes all fit with this in vitro data. I also told you that this Boston group has published that their PPAR gamma knockout has no phenotype, which uh, reviewers are not real happy with. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to justify, well, I don't know what to do with that. But then we finally got another PPAR gamma knockout mouse. So this is a separate RIPCRE, a separate PPAR gamma CRE mouse, which was created by Rick Mortensen and colleagues in Michigan. So separate mouse. The original studies from the Boston group used a rat insulin promoter um, system to try and be beta cell specific, but that's a little problematic. So we used a PDX1 promoter, which is also a little problematic, but a different promoter. And we have a mouse that has a different phenotype. And what can I say? You know, that's what we do. So we have a mouse which does, in fact, show glucose intolerance. Nothing terribly informative when you look at the pancreas. Does show big reductions in islet PDX1 and GIP expression, the way I would predict from this signaling pathway. Does show impaired glucose-induced and GIP-induced insulin secretion, which is what I would expect. And does show TZDs normally increase the expression of PDX1 in cells, and that is not that is gone when you take cells from this PPAR gamma knockout. So it has a phenotype that works for me in terms of supporting this concept. And here's just sort of standard data. So we've got the PPAR gamma knockout mouse that we're looking at, so it's gone. Big reduction in islet PDX1, modest reduction in GLUT2, which sort of fits with parts of this story. Uh, no, and it's quite specific, no change in PPAR alpha, some of these other things. So at a genetic level, it fits with what we would want. Uh, I've told you GIP uh, receptor is one of our big targets, and when you look at that in these mouth, uh, mouse, it's down at both the message and protein level as well, also by immunohistochemistry. Uh, Glucose-induced insulin secretion in isolated islets is messy. And this part I like a lot, which is if you take these islets and if you expose them to a TZD in vitro, which happens to be troglitazone, you get a big expression of PDX1. And when you do it in our, in our wild-type islets, in our normal islets, that's gone. So, you know, at least the phenotype for me fits with this signaling pathway that I'm trying to get across. So what? 
that's the issue we all have to deal with. You know, are we just looking at some biology or does it actually mean anything? Well, to try and give you that story, my research history has been to take animal models and try and tear them apart and see what I can learn and then go further with, well, how do I learn more about that signaling step? I don't come at it from, gee, I wonder what the signaling peptide happens to do in a beta cell. So uh, we've used a, a large number of models over the years, some of compensation, something I started when the field really didn't know much about compensation probably 15 years ago because they studied islets in vitro. And you can't take an islet in vitro and study compensation because you need to stimulate it with something like glucose. And so by definition, there's no compensation. But we took models, and we were a group very comfortable with rodent models when many groups were not because they were cell groups. And so we always did islets. So my favorite, one of my favorite models is the Zucker fatty rat. So this is a rat that has a mutation in the leptin receptor. It's the rat equivalent of the DBDB mouse. Uh, it does not get diabetes for the most part. The Zucker diabetic fatty rat gets diabetes, which has an additional genetic mutation. So I love them because they are metabolic as all get out, but they don't get diabetes. And so my question is, well, what's that about? And to show how, so how metabolic they are, this is just a standard <laughs> characterization of the rats at 10 weeks. So, you know, it's unbelievable. Their insulin levels, who in the human world would think about a human who has insulin levels that are almost tenfold higher than, you know, a thin individual. I mean, that would be fasting insulin levels, I don't know, of what, 110, 120, 140? We don't see people like that. So these animals are obese and incredibly insulin resistant if you use that as a single defining parameter. They're also quite hyperlipidemic. Although, you know, in the clinic, we use triglycerides. We're in love with triglycerides. I don't think too many people are aware of the fact that the connection between triglycerides and free fatty acid levels isn't so strong, so that, so that you can have huge levels of triglycerides and actually your circulating free fatty acid levels will be high, but they're not the same off the chart as they are the triglycerides. But this would be the rat equivalent of a very metabolic kind of person as we think about. You know, it's got all the hallmarks. Their blood sugars are normal. Now, uh, you don't think a millimolar at 7.8 is about uh, 150 milligrams per deciliter glucose. You might think, what? But it turns out if you use the right technology that out of the cage, the blood sugars of rats and mice are about 140. Our, our problem and most people's problem is if you use reflectance meters, which everybody uses these days, you get blood sugars of 80, 90, and 100, which is not true if you use a true glucose analyzer, which is what we did years ago with all of our studies. So, and this happens just to be basal glucoses, but if you do oral glucose tolerance tests and meal challenges and all those things we do in rodents, they're normal, unbelievably normal in these animals. Okay. So the first thing we were interested in is, well, how does that work? And to look at beta cell mass, and we would expect there should be an increase in beta cell mass. And so one of the guys I work with is an excellent islet imaging person. You'll see some of his slides. So he did a project to look at beta cell mass in these animals and started at 10 weeks and found that their mass was increased about three or fourfold. Fits, perfect. And then he did about a year-long study that probably cost us about $80,000 between getting these animals and studying every signaling pathway known to man related to beta cell proliferation and uh, uh, survival and mass expansion. Couldn't find anything that was different between the Zucker fatties and the controls. And so I said, well, maybe you need to go earlier. 
So he then did this study where he looked at four time periods and found that in fact the money was much earlier that the expansion in mass occurred really when they were weaning at about four weeks of age. And so the concept was you'd grow the mass, and once you grow the mass, you don't need enhanced signaling pathways. You just now have normal signaling pathways that keep the enhanced math, mass at that same level. So we had spent all this time and money, but decided we were in the wrong place. So now he comes and gets that. Now, if you look at that, you think, because in fact, in this animal model, it's pretty well worked out that the first true proven time of insulin resistance is later. That there's not this direct link that insulin resistance better beta cell mass. It seemed to precede some of this dysregulation, and we've seen that in several other models, which is kind of interesting, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So now, we looked earlier, and we looked in a very simplistic way when the concept of how beta cell mass is regulated was much simpler than it is today, but it actually includes the signaling pathways of my interest, because I've already told you that my interest is sort of FOXL1 and PPAR gamma and the IRS2-related signaling pathway and AKT and these kinds of things. We know that it's modulated by some of the incretins and, and other uh, calcium-binding proteins and a variety of other things, and so we sort of looked at the kinds of factors we were interested in related to this pathway. So the first thing is if you come at that time, you do, in fact, see enhancement of this pathway. So now we're looking at an antibody of PY, which is against tyrosine phosphorylated proteins, so it's not a terribly uh, specific antibody, but again, we were looking at IRS2, an activation of the pathway, which is tyrosine phosphorylation. And, and clearly, at the time where the mass is expanding, big increase, as you see uh, in this, uh, in this uh, sort of, that's interesting, these red in the ducts. We also see activation of a, using a phospho-AKT antibody here in red, uh, and in some of these cells, actually, it was quite common to see both uh, PDX1 as well as phospho-AKT cells, not usually insulin-positive cells. So it looked as if the pathway was, in fact, turned on at that time point. I've already introduced you to my interest in GIP receptor, and GIP receptor was clearly turned on at the exact same time. So this is straight immunochemistry, but we could show you all the standard uh, uh, quantifiable uh, uh, gels you might want to look for. There's a big increase in expression of GIP receptor at the very time. And then, uh, again, the system is clearly modulated by what's going on with uh, CREB, and activation of CREB commonly occurs when the system is turned on as well. Now, I talked to you about pyruvate carboxylase. My actually interest in pyruvate carboxylase precedes a lot of this, because about 10 years ago, I was interested in mitochondrial fuel metabolism. That was my big thing. And the issue was simply the following, which is the way it should work in a beta cell is we believe that insulin secretion absolutely correlates with, with glucose utilization and oxidation, and that you need to create a lot of ATP and other factors to support a heavy level of insulin secretion. Fine. And so in the beta cell, essentially, you know, you take glucose and make pyruvate. You can't do much past that because there's virtually no lactate dehydrogenase. And so essentially the pyruvate gets kicked into the mitochondria. And what it should do, as it does in every other cell, is be metabolized by pyruvate dehydrogenase. And lo and behold, after multiple steps, you end up with ATP. Great. Well, there's a problem because in my zuckers that are hugely metabolic and hugely hyperlipidemic, um, the Randall cycle has told us for decades that shouldn't work. 
that if you actually have high levels of free fatty acids, what that is supposed to do, and what has clearly been shown in muscle, especially cardiac muscle, is that high levels of fatty acids inhibit the activation of this enzyme, and you reduce glucose oxidation. So I thought, whoa, how does, what, how does that work? And so we have a lot of insulin secretion in this model, so I said they must be immune to the Zucker, um, to the uh, Randall cycle. I thought this is going to be great. I'm going to show that beta cells are different in their biology, the Randall cycle. So the first thing we do is we measure pyruvate dehydrogenase activity, and it's down. It is down. Oh, so the Randall cycle does actually seem to occur, but then we measure glucose oxidation using standard tracer techniques, and it's increased, which is absolutely counterintuitive. It makes zero sense that it should work until you know that actually in beta cells not only is PDH expressed, but pyruvate carboxylase is highly expressed, much more than virtually any other tissue, so that in normal situation, half the pyruvate goes through PDH and half goes through pyruvate carboxylase. And the importance of that is downstream from pyruvate carboxylase is a lot of mitochondrial biology that are called the anaplerotic insulin secretion pathways, which support insulin secretion. So that's sort of a default mechanism. So in fact, what happens in these cells is really amazing biology which is you now divert your metabolic uh, factors through pyruvate carboxylase and you initiate these pathways. And some of these pathways are related to malonyl-CoA, the famous uh, uh, inhibiting malonyl-CoA, and anaplerosis, and some of the others have to do with NAD, pH shuttles, which we believe in, and we did lots of tracing of pathways to show that occurs. And so the take-home message is PC and beta cells is hugely important to defend against metabolic problems inhibiting beta cell function. It's a big, big deal. Okay. So that's normal biology. What happens with failing biology? So now we take our animal models we like and we have to do some kind of metabolic stress. You could do fat feeding, but they're already incredibly fat and hyperlipidemic, so I'm not going to fat feed them. I have to do something to them to create a metabolic stress, and I've already told you that my favorite thing to do is to do uh, partial pancreatectomies because they're amazingly easy in the uh, experimental domain, and we've just, I don't know how many thousands of partial pancreatectomies my lab has generated over the years, but a lot. And so what you see now is what the inside of a rodent looks like. Um, it doesn't exactly look like that, but it's fairly close. <laughs> So you've got the spleen buried over here, you've got the stomach, and then you've got this globular pancreas called the splenic portion, and you've got this more gelatinous diffuse pancreas, which is a little harder to work with. Uh, my initial days with the Weirs, who were in Boston, uh, were doing 90% pancreatectomies, and so we left this little portion, which has the bile ducts so you could figure it out, and we cut everything.